0: Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Gildas, and this is New Books Not Work. Uh, I have the great pleasure of hosting Jeffrey Snodgrass today. Uh, hi, Jeff.
1: Hi, Armand. Uh, I appreciate the invitation.
0: Thank you very much for making the time here. And today we'll be speaking about uh, Jeff's latest book, The Avatar Faculty Ec- Ecstatic Transformations in Religion and Video Games, which came out this year from University of California Press. Uh, Jeff, uh, for those of listeners who don't know you very well, can you tell us a bit about
1: yourself? Yes, Armand, let me say a few things about myself. So I'm a professor of anthropology at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, USA. I have interest in psychological anthropology, religion and ritual, caste and social hierarchy, games and play, ethnographic research methods, and also health and well-being. As you know, I've conducted long-term uh, ethnographic research in India on a variety of topics. Those topics include things like caste and performance, spirit possession, which is one of the f- things featured in the book, uh, Indigenous peoples and the environment, health, and more recently gaming, and what are called Indian gaming lounges or zones, where players meet and play face-to-face uh, with others games like CSGO, Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, for those who know about these things. I've also worked in other cultural contexts, including Europe and France, for example, one of my favorite places, along with India. Also in East and Southeast Asia in collaboration with other researchers. So I'm the sole author of this book that we're talking about today, The Avatar Faculty. Uh, And that's a very personal book to me. But these days I more generally work and write and publish in collaborative teams. And in fact, a lot of the teamwork lies behind the arguments I further develop in this latest book of mine. I also have books on the Indian caste system, indigenous peoples in the environment, and systematic ethnographic research methods. More generally, I'd say I'm a very curious person, a traveler, and a lifelong learner. Uh, I have my foot in both the humanities and also in the sciences. For example, uh, as you know, I'm a cultural and psychological anthropologist, but I have a background, a bachelor's degree in lecker biology. And sometimes I bridge these two sides of my brain and my personality in what people refer to as biocultural research Mm -hmm. on projects like culture, stress and immune biology during the pandemic. That was the focus of a national science foundation funded project on social connection and health during this recent, maybe we can say ongoing pandemic.
0: Yeah. And how how did this book come about?
1: Yes, Armand, that's an interesting story. And a lot of <laughs> people ask me this question. Uh, I'll give you a few details here, but I would say that I describe it in, in more detail in the book because I think that is something that readers uh, think about and wonder about. So I would say I have a long-standing interest in the power of narrative and stories. For example, in my dissertation research, I was in Anthropology University of California, San Diego. I worked in India with a community referred to as bots in Rajasthan, India. And they are professional bards and storytellers. The seed for this book was planted when, as a new professor... I was brainstorming, I might even say struggling, to find creative ways to teach anthropological research methods to my students, something that came, I would say, relatively naturally to me, but less so to some of my students. So I came up with the idea of leading a research team inside an online game that's referred to as World of Warcraft, Um, and some in my tabletop gaming group at the time, that was something I was doing there as a new professor. Uh, we're also playing this online game. So the idea was that um, we would conduct field observations and interviews, interacting with other players and their other players' characters, and also, you know, we might call them their avatars, inside this game world, World of Warcraft. I thought of games like World of Warcraft as dynamic living stories, where players actively take on character roles rather than just reading about or viewing them as one might in a novel or a film, It turns out I wasn't exactly right about that in in the case of this game, but that's another story. Maybe I'll loop back to that at some point. We'll see. Um, In fact, that's in part how I thought about spirit possession, something I had earlier studied during my dissertation research and just beyond it uh, in India. I actually continued to think about that and research that from time to time uh, in India uh, as well. Um, in part because of my relation to that bot community, who you'll re- remember are the those bards and storytellers, who are the focus of my dissertation. I also thought of spirit possession as performances of a kind. You know, we might say narratives or stories of a kind, where the possessed would strongly identify with gods and spirits, and then act out those identifications in ritual context. I'd emphasize here I was working with performers, so when we would see these performances together, the bot members of the bot community. Would kind of talk about it this way, so this Mm -hmm. is this obviously influenced me. The deeper I delved, the more I became interested in the relationships and exchanges a person might have with such secondary, what we might call performative selves. In spirit possession, for example, the possessed person comes to think of themselves as the avatar or vehicle vessel. That's one way we might we might define avatar uh, as some uh, the vehicle vessel of, of some kind of spiritual or even. Uh, deified you know divinity or entity uh, but still the god of the spirit is a second self of the kind uh, and in games like world of warcraft the character of the avatar is the vehicle or vessel of the player's consciousness the player projects themselves into the character into this game world so in short the book reflects years of thinking about the parallels and the differences between these processes in both play and ritual context Why do we come to identify so strongly with secondary cells in these ways? What purposes do these second avatar cells serve and what benefits might they they provide? These are the questions that I ask myself uh, in the book and I continue to think about.
0: And I mean, that's what I think makes this book very fascinating because it bridges the world of online gaming and spirit possession. Um, how did this happen? And maybe can you tell us a bit about this, at least seemingly different field sites?
1: Yes, Armand, so this is the key question. So let me uh, elaborate on that uh, a bit. The central idea is that avatars are agents of another's consciousness. And I think one novelty in the book is like developing avatar as a kind of analytical concept. So avatar is a kind of agent that does our bidding in some sense. So an agent of another's consciousness. By uniting with an avatar, one is able to inhabit another reality where one can accomplish new kinds of things. That's true of gods who possess humans in order to pursue worldly ambitions. For example, a ghost or an ancestor who wants to experience a new worldly life and pleasures. This is something, this is the way it was described to me in Rajasthan, India, during Mm -hmm. various fieldwork stints. Uh, It's also true of gamers who gain new bodies and abilities in video game worlds. Now, of course, there are differences in the exact way these avatar processes play out. A Hindu religious ritual is quite different than a video game play session. I get that. But underlying the two, as I see it, is this identification with a symbolic second self, be that second self a divinity or a, what we might call a gaming elf or a pixie or a character. And those identifications can spill out into one's first life in ways that can be psycho psychosocially beneficial. So coming to experience yourself as a god and having others accept that identity as valid can provide the possessed with new and more highly valued social status and prestige. In the central case I describe in the book, it is a kind of introduction to each of the main chapters of the book, uh, is that of Beidami Bhatt. So um, in that case study, we see how those kinds of identifications with a deity in this case, uh, help her to mend fractures that she experienced with other members in her group. In a sense, it helped her to reintegrate her and also her husband and her natal family into this community, which, you know, was composed of other members of her family uh, and, and others as well. That seemed to help Badami personally. So this identification with this avatar, this kind of second self seemed to really help her. Help her. Uh, in particular, alleviating sources of stress and conflict in her life. Uh, And in a way, I would say contributed to her overall health and well-being. So to step back a minute, we might say that that avatar identification, uh, coming to experience herself in a sense, God as God promoted her well-being. And that's kind of a key point uh, of the book. So for gamers, I saw similar kinds of processes. So the book, let me just emphasize, it's not just about avatars, it's about avatars and how those identifications promote, you know, what I would say is positive um, well-being. Okay, so for gamers, I saw similar kinds of processes. Playing a character in a fantastic gaming world provided many benefits. Uh, Some listeners might find that hard to believe, but I actually uh, believe that is the case and make that argument uh, quite forcefully. So, these benefits could be things like cognitive distraction, and thus something that some listeners might think oh, it's just a kind of escape from the world, from bosses' bills and conflicts in your life. Um, so, yes, it's serving as a kind of stress relief, but it's seen as a kind of uh, escape. Uh, but it was more than that. Those identities could be appreciated by other members of one's play group, for example, who players of games like Warcraft would say, um, were quite important to them, as important as their their offline uh, friends, and even could become uh, to be felt to be like family of a kind, people like in your gaming guild, uh, for example. So in a sense, in these gaming contexts, one skillful enactment of an avatar identity as a character, as a warrior, a healer, uh, a hero, right, also provided players with this elevated kind of secondary, kind of virtual, we might say, uh, social status because you're playing with other other people, other uh, their characters, and also themselves in these guild or kind of online uh, environments. Um, so that's, you know, you'll remember that's kind of similar to what Badami Bhatt had. She also had those kind of identifications with a secondary avatar. In this case, it was the deity that channeled uh, herself in this case through through Badami. Uh, but those identifications with that avatar could then spill over into Badami's you know, overall kind of life and experience of her life. Um, So, you know, overall, I learned that players could come to understand themselves differently in their actual world lives, uh, maybe as more accomplished, more able to enact and complete projects that were important to them, more more heroic. So in theoretical language, their sense of agency or efficacy uh, had been enhanced. And this is something I saw quite commonly among many players again it's the character of the avatar identities that were the vehicles that provided for that kind of enhanced sense of uh, agency and self-efficacy and also therefore i would say uh, well-being as a side note i think agency and that feeling of efficacy and being able being able to accomplish things that are important to you in your lives and in the world sometimes i talk about it as moral agency because it's not just agency it's like acting on things that you consider Uh, like virtuous, that's a a term that comes from Aristotle's kind of new, uh, kind of the way he's been interpreted recently in terms of virtue ethics. Uh, So I think that efficacy and agency and moral efficacy, moral agency is quite important to people's uh, sense of wellness and well-being and health. And and I think that these avatar identities can enhance that. Um, So I see my role as an anthropological theorist and analyst to reveal underlying patterns and processes in the world. In this case, I saw a parallel between ritual possession and video games. The identification with secondary avatar cells could provide for elevated social status. We might call it prestige, the sense of agency that I was just talking about, which there's a whole literature, an extensive literature on so-called health disparities or health inequalities. And this line of research shows that these kinds of elevations in social status, in this case, elevations in virtual social status, but spills back over into people's, you know, actual worlds and fuller lives, right? These can have a large positive impacts on overall health and well-being. So one important mechanism that researchers like Michael Marmot, very much, you know, enmeshed in this kind of whole uh, health disparities research line of thinking, have identified that there are kind of stress relief pathways uh, that can facilitate the way that social status can enhance your kind of health, well-being, stress relief, things like that. Now, look, I get it. This is an abstraction, right? This is kind of a higher level of abstraction, right? Where I under, where I identify these underlying parallels between spirit possession and gaming. But for me, that's the role of theory and analysis and the author, right, as I understand it. In this case, I hope this abstraction and this drawing of parallels between uh, the spiritually possessed and also video game players is a useful one which might help readers from various fields or just you know other other kinds of readers see these these and other phenomenon in new and even parallel ways
0: uh, and i mean i will come back to this issue of escapism later on but uh before moving on with the other questions i have i also wanted to like ask you about how the name came about because i mean avatar as the word it's very popular thanks to james cameron's uh, film franchise etc with a uh, the other show um how 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 does how did the name the avatar faculty come about?
1: Yeah, so avatar is a tricky term. I've actually come to see that. So there was a time when avatar was a very, um, I would say, common way that video game players uh, would refer to their characters. Uh, I've learned through my own experiences and through the experiences of my my students who are also my research collaborators that that moment has kind of passed, and so a lot of. <laughs> A lot of video game players will no longer speak so often as an avatar, though they still understand it. They might talk about their character or, or something something else like that. But in any case, yeah, so I was being a little bit strategic is that this notion of avatar has a kind of popular cultural uh, uh, cachet, you know, we might say. So, you know, people know it, they understand it. Yeah, maybe video game players or other gamers, it's not the first way that they would describe their experiences, but it's still something that that people know. It turns out that early game designers of these early virtual worlds, like going back to like the 80s, they reference this term of uh, avatar, right? Um now, you know, if you if you study Hindi or Sanskrit or you work in India, you will know this notion of avatar, uh, avatar, um, as a kind of embodiment of divinity. It's Again, it's not a term that people would speak about every day, but it's like a known and, you know, important term in, you know, in religious context. And it's certainly something that I, I learned about when I was studying, researching, uh, you know, religion. So for me, there's this kind of neat, you know, parallel. It's like, okay, well, these, these gamers are talking, they're using this term avatar. Do they do they know that this is a, this ancient, you know, Hindu term that still has, uh, that is still used quite commonly in contemporary uh, religious context. Um, but, you know, is that just a superficial connection? Is there something deeper there? You know, if you actually go back and look at the history, it's not just superficial. I mean, maybe it's superficial, but game designers from the 80s and like Silicon Valley were, you know, some of them were like aficionados, like Hinduism, you know, and meditation and, you know, things like that. And there's a kind of maybe exoticized kind of interest in, in, in South Asia and the East and all that, and all that stuff. But they were like explicitly draw, drawn on Hindu uh, Hindu context and in, in Hindu terminology. But in any case, the point is that there is a history there. There is an actual kind of historical connection. Um, but in the book, I you know, I try to go a little bit beyond that and think about, well, what is, you know, is there something deeper? Is there some other deeper reason for why this term, you know, might have significance and even a a kind of parallel significance in each of these, you know, historical or or these different kind of cultural contexts. And the argument that I come up with is like, yes, there are definitely some parallels in this kind of identification with these secondary selves that can be quite helpful to us in promoting a kind of positive self-image and identity and health and well-being. But, you know, can also, there are also some differences that i kind of started to allude to, but I also describe in the book. One major difference might be, well, you know, in a video game, you're projecting yourself into the avatar. So in some sense, you're in control of the avatar and that identity, and it does your bidding, right? In India, it's, it's kind of reversed. You know, it's like you're the vehicle of this higher consciousness, this God, right? That's important. Uh, I think for me, the bigger picture is the exchanges between the kind of secondary self and uh, the in the primary self. But I think that those kinds of differences in the directionality and how much we're in control, of the avatar can be quite revealing. Maybe something about U.S or American or contemporary individualism compared to in India, not that you know people are also individuals there and they think about themselves as individuals. But there's also this this, I think, greater awareness that we are the vehicles of larger social and cultural and historical, And communal or you know societal whatever you want to call them kind of forces
0: and the faculty part in the name it's oh yeah yeah so is it it about the yeah faculty is probably
1: yeah yeah, capacity I yeah that's good good keep me on track here Armand so (laughs) yes I went I went in great detail about the first piece the second piece is you know I'm being a little bit um, provocative it's like Cultural anthropologists don't really like to talk about faculties in the sense of underlying, even potentially universal uh, capacities. Um, I think that's somewhat a mistake. And so I, yeah, the, the gist of it is that, yes, we have this capacity to have these identifications with secondary selves that can be useful to us. That capacity is often, I mean, it's not only religion, it's not only video games, it's like you know fiction and and literature and and film and, and the imagination. We have this capacity to project ourselves uh, into, you know, virtual or kind of imagined or you know, whatever you want to call them other kind of levels of reality. So I do think that is a human uh, capacity and faculty a little bit of a poor choice of words because well I'm a member of the faculty at CSU and I think most <laughs> readers will think of like okay faculty what's going on here it's you know I don't know maybe it's good to get people to think a, a, a <laughs> second a second time about a term but yeah so the the idea is that yes a a somewhat universal capacity or faculty though as readers will see in the book I draw on Rick Schwedder's uh, idea of uh universalism without uniformitarianism it's a kind of mouthful uh for sure but he's a cultural psychologist at university of chicago who i would say he's you know he's been influential in the way i think about these things and as he shows in his work and as i hope to show in this book there are ways to think about you know universal capacities that we all have as human beings you know we're the members of the same species that still nevertheless can get represented or enacted or performed in very different ways. So they're not uniform in these different historical and cultural contexts. And that's certainly something that I draw attention to in the book.
0: Right. I mean, uh, and I mean that like another thing that's very interesting about the book to me is that you use quantitative methods to support some of your arguments about absorption, especially in relation to online gamers. And I guess we don't, Often see anthropologists using quantitative methods, yeah. uh, although I'm aware that there are others using quantitative methods in psychological anthropology. But I would love to hear from you uh, why you chose to use why why you chose to use some of these methods and how the quantitative data helps uh, your argument.
1: Yeah, no, Armand, great question. Though I will say you've opened up a can of worms uh, with this question. Uh, yes. It is the case that cultural anthropologists uh, do not typically use quantitative analysis in their uh, in their ethnographies, these case study accounts of other cultural settings around the world. Um, you know, I tell my students when I train them in this kind of mixed qualitative quantitative approach, I say, don't do this to become famous. <laughs> you know, do <laughs> do this. You know, pursue the mixed methods to be right and to kind of check yourself. Uh, I think there's, because I think in culture anthropology, you know, it, it, it leans more toward the humanities and um, I think the humanities, not always, but in many cases can be kind of numbers averse or even kind of anti uh, quantification. So let me, let me expand on a little bit more on my ideas behind that and why I do that. So I use numbers in addition to the, the qualitative lines of inquiry inquiry to kind of what I would say, get closer to the truth. So I use them to, to see more clearly in this case, like social and cultural patterns. Let me emphasize that the heart of my research is ethnographic. So I do, and this is what is really the focus of the book. I rely on participant observation and interviews, participant observation, if listeners don't know, you know, kind of going and planting yourself in a, a setting, a community or something, and engaging, observing, and even participating on some level with those. Interviews of a lot of different kinds. Often I describe them more as like semi-structured because I'll have like things I want to ask, but they're, you know, there's a kind of improvisational element to them as well. So those qualitative lines of inquiry, those are where I made the big discoveries and had my aha moments. Um, like in seeing Uh, the health and well-being parallels between spirit possession and gaming via those secondary uh, selves. Those aha moments, even those discoveries, we might call them, follow what the American uh, pragmatist philosopher C.S. Peirce referred to as the logic of abductive inference. So I hope you'll excuse me for a moment. I'm I'm very excited about about this notion of abductive inference so i'm going to just say a few things about it and i'll probably return to it at some point as well it's actually different than most qualitative uh, researchers will say oh we're doing induction and cs person no you're doing abduction and sherlock holmes and others are also doing abductive inference when they you know solve crimes so the way purse and others have described it uh people like michael agar is and is a more contemporary uh, anthropologist who described it. He actually passed away in 2017, unfortunately, but he also wrote about anthropology and abductive abductive inference. So according to Peirce and uh, Agar and others, when encountering perplexing new observations, the idea, and so those might be something a puzzling observation, something we don't understand that we see in the field, we we go away from it, so per se, we ask ourselves, what concept might we posit to explain those phenomenon or data? And we have to create that explanation. So that's an act of creativity and imagination. It's not, in a sense, there in the data. So in my case, I abduced or abducted. I'm not sure which is the right term. Mm-hmm. But I thought that enhanced social status or prestige helped explain the health and well-being benefits of identifying with avatars in both ritual and gaming context. So you can, I think you see where I'm going here is like, well, I'm seeing these things that are kind of puzzling to me. And I would say that even the gaming worlds were puzzling to me when I first encountered them. I didn't know the rules and the norms and all that. Uh, but, you know, I slowly became more of a culture expert on that, but I posited, Oh, maybe this kind of logic of secondary cells and the kind of benefits that might, you know, um, serve in terms of enhanced prestige, for example, might help explain some of the things and even the draw of these secondary cells, both in gaming context and in ritual context. So in my opinion, there's no better mode than ethnography to abduce or abduct or discover new things about the world. So I I am an ethnographer, I mean, uh, through and through. But I'm also committed to the idea that we anthropologists who are so keen to discover things about the world via our largely qualitative methods should also put our ideas at risk. You know, test them in some sense, that sounds a little more scientific, so I would just say put them at risk. And we should attempt to further confirm or verify them, even to falsify them, perhaps, in the language of philosopher of science, uh, Karl Popper. So I do agree one can do that via extensive, rigorous analysis of qualitative data, uh, going through uh, systematically ethnographic field notes uh, and interview transcripts, for example. But I see math, statistics, and numbers as also helping me to accomplish the latter goal of verifying my ideas through other kinds of data and other lines of analysis. With numbers and statistics, I can check how widely, for example, how widely distributed within a group a certain pattern might be. That pattern could be an association between an absorptive or an immersive gaming experience or a a ritual experience, and stress relief, for example, or some other health outcome. I can also check how extensive for whom and with what qualifications those patterns related to avatar identification and stress relief, for example, might be. When do those hold and for whom? Again, using quantitative analyses that include other, other control variables like demographic ones, for example, like age gender you know socioeconomic status these things, things like that there are these kind of clever you know techniques quantitatively you can control for those and see well maybe for men or women or some other gender these patterns hold more fully than compared to others for example i think these larger patterns and distributions and this process of falsification but i'd just say these larger patterns and distributions can be quite challenging, quite difficult to detect via qualitative methods alone. So I like to check myself and use those other lines of inquiry. Uh, With numbers, I can also quickly generate and test new hypotheses that if my logic were sound, uh, they, you know, the things I'm seeing should also be verified via additional, you know, kind of forms of analysis. Uh, This might be, for example, the certain avatar identification, health outcome, only holds for players who cross a, a gaming commitment and involvement threshold. In other words, we can ask players in a you know, like in a field survey, well, how, how involved are you in this game? And if they say, well, I'm a 1 out of 10 versus like a 9 or a 10 out of 10. The processes might be different. Again, you can see that and eyeball that qualitatively and through ethnography. But with the numbers and the analysis, there are other ways that you can check that even, I'd say, more um, uh, rigorously. Um, so again, that logic of falsification and Karl Popper that I was talking about above. Um, so I like having a broader uh, toolkit available to me, and there's actually there's a whole like I think it's yeah it's a seven volume ethnographer's toolkit by LeCompte and Schunzel, If any of the listeners are interested, you know have a lot of tool, you know have a lot of tools in the toolkit uh, to kind of confirm uh, those kind of you know amazing discoveries that we ethnographers uh, have. And so overall, this is why I follow a mixed qualitative and quantitative approach to analysis. Approaching a phenomenon through various analytical avenues increases my confidence in a particular finding. Now, let me emphasize both to, I hope, future readers and also to your listeners. The book focuses large, I'd say, almost exclusively on qualitative ethnographic data and analysis of field notes and field observations and interviews. The quantitative analyses, a few of them largely kind of, I would say, pretty straightforward, like descriptive stats, like how many players said they agree with this kind of statement. Yes, some of those uh, appear in the main text, uh, but a lot of those are presented in appendices because I do realize that a lot of anthropologists and other readers, maybe they're not as interested in that, but they're in appendices in somewhat simplified form. So the readers who are interested, you know, they can look at that. They might learn something. They might it might pique their curiosity and they might become kind of inspired you know to learning more about this and pursuing uh some of these uh other ways of uh, analyzing qualitative data um and in the in the you know in the appendices and through the text and in the, the, the end notes for example you know i do reference the original research that this was based on and sometimes there will be an even more i'd say statistically kind of rigorous analysis of some of this stuff and so readers could also pursue that if they were interested
0: and i mean one of the things i want to ask you now is like how like when was this aha moment when you thought, oh, actually like spiritual, like spirit possession and online gaming has something similar, like something common?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, when was that aha moment? Yeah, I'm thinking of, I think Newton in his bathtub or something, maybe, maybe not quite that elevated, but when he, um... so... Yeah, you know, I don't know. I would say, you know, when I, when my, so this started, the the gaming stuff started back in spring of 2008. And that's when I first um, brought, it was like a, it was like 10 students who were very excited to do fieldwork into this online game. And so there immediately, you know, I think I started seeing in a surprising way, how meaningful these gaming characters and these games and the achievements in these games and the social connections in these games, how meaningful and how deep they were. that It actually, it surprised me. Um, I also was surprised, and this is something I do talk about in the book, I, I kind of moved away from the addiction frame, that kind of loss of agency, we might say. And I think the algorithms of some of these games can lead some players down a kind of loss of control. Um, but I, maybe we'll get to that in a moment, maybe more. It it is, it is kind of in the background of the book that there are these other ways that these avatar processes can go. There are some other risk. Um, but in any case, so yeah, the reason I brought that up is because I was also surprised is like players were talking about in their own language. Like I'm addicted to this game. Sometimes they just meant, oh, this is a great game. It's fun. I'm addicted to it, it's a positive thing because I really love this game. But there was another level of it where they know they really meant that they were addicted in the sense that there was a sense of compulsion uh, that was leading to disruptions in their overall life. And that was that was actually quite surprising to me as well. I'm like, oh, I didn't, I'd never imagined that you could become addicted uh, to a video game. I guess I always had in the back of my mind, you know, like notions of fans and super fans and people who are very committed to kind of fantastic worlds or literary worlds or a, a novel or a series or something like that. So this is a, a kind of long way of saying is that I, I I think when I started appreciating how meaningful these characters and they were at, at this point in 2008 often referred to as avatars, and I'd come fresh off of like you know these spirit possession mm-hmm. you know you know studies that kind of stretched beyond my dissertation up through kind of 2000 you know four or five kind of the early 2000s. So there wasn't that big of a gap between those two um between those two periods in in my own, you know, field work, uh, ethnographic life. So I started to say, wow, there really is a parallel here. There is something going on with um these are these are actual kind of secondary cells in both of these contexts. They seem to have great power and kind of they're quite compelling to the to either players or, uh, religious individuals who kind of identify them and even channel them, you know, into their own lives, and that's where I started to say, I think there's that's where I started to see that I thought there was actually something um, deeper, you know, between these these kinds of identifications. I no longer just thought of it as like, oh, it's just a video game, it's just fun, it's just a diversion. I, I started seeing, no, it actually feels not in all cases, it feels like there could be something deeper. In terms of identity, in terms of uh, well-being, in terms of social relations, uh, in terms of your self-image, in in the video game context, and that's where I really started to think seriously about. I'm not sure about this book at that point, though. I did write it. I guess, yeah. I, and I say this in the uh, in the preface. There, there's an earlier article around 2011 where I first kind of posited uh, this relationship. So it kind of. Sp- follow you know it takes a while for scholarly articles to be published but it wasn't you know i started talking about these parallels i do remember one dramatic rejection (laughs) from a journal like no this is too too weird and wild we don't uh, you know you need to better you know support your arguments that kind of thing um so you know that's that's fair enough and i think the review process and a lot of different contexts probably helped me clarify you know the the parallels as, as i saw them
0: and I mean, one of one of the things that struck me while I was reading the book is like, have you walked the, I would say, the fine line between believing your interlocutor's accounts of spirit possession and explaining their their behavior in sociopolitical terms, yeah. uh, or maybe finding more secular explanations for their behavior. Um, and and I mean, at some point, it I was reminded of Evans Pritchard's uh, witchcrafts, uh, witchcraft oracles and magic, in which somewhere in the introduction he says something like he says something like something like I also saw lights flying into the forest, and then, uh, as the readers, we are all taken aback, <laughs> and, uh, and then a second later he says, of course, it must have been someone carrying a lantern to the forest. Uh, where do you see your work standing in terms of as a researcher, believing your interlocutors otherworldly ex- explanations, and I'm also asking as a person who easily believes in otherworldly explanations.
1: Yeah, um, Armand, that's an interesting <laughs> question. So, Evans Pritchard, I, I still I'm teaching my a, a class on religion. It's an undergraduate, largely theory class, uh, but you know, theory and ethnography tightly interwoven. I use a book called Ten Theories of Religion. Uh, Evans Pritchard is one of the theorists in there. So I still revisit that, uh, his field fieldwork uh, among the Azande and others. Um, and there's a film I use on Azande on witchcraft as well. Um, yeah, the, I'll, I have some things to say about this before I even get into the heart of my response. I, I, you're not the first person who has drawn attention to this. I think the way I write about this stuff, a lot of readers or colleagues are like, they kind of come at me and like, you actually, you know, you believe in these spirits and because the, the way I'm writing about it, I give them a kind of real, I think like, like a kind of um, respect, I guess I would say. And I often am speaking through the way things would be presented to me, you know, by my interlocutors as well. So to simplify a little bit, I would say that's the culture anthropologist in me who was trained to think about an- analysis and anthropological analysis as a dialogue Between cultural insider points of view, what are sometimes referred to as emic perspectives, E-M-I-C, that comes originally from phonemic or phonemic, the sounds that are recognized in a given language. So a dialogue between cultural insider point of views, emic, and also theoretical frames of analysis, sometimes referred to as etic uh, points of view from phonetic as a general system uh, of linguistic meaning. So that dialogue is very uh, important to me. In my opinion, this is what makes cultural anthropology such a rich and interesting field and quite different from other social scientific fields where cultural insider perspectives are less valued. Uh, I have a colleague, for example, a sociologist, Mike Lacey, and we've worked on a lot of papers together, including those that appear in the book. And I would say we have a lot of similarities in the way we think about things, but I think giving that kind of credibility to insider point of views is not as much in his training or the way he thinks about you know, sociological uh, analysis. So I do think this is something distinctive about cultural anthropology, at least in a general sense. It's not that some sociologists don't do this or others don't do this, but in a general sense, I think this is a really distinctive, uh, important feature of cultural anthropology, that dialogue. And not reducing um, insider points of view only to an analytical frame Uh, of reference uh, or meaning. So does this mean that I believe in those cultural insider perspectives, like, you know, believes in spirits as capturing some, you know, more objective truth about the world? I would say not exactly. Rather, I would say that I bracket my own kind of opinions or visions or even personal beliefs about the nature of reality. Uh, That term of bracketing comes from phenomenology, philosophical bracketing you bracket certain questions uh, that just can't be addressed you know with current uh methodology or not or not the focus of the analysis so i'm more interested in how people uh how my interlocutors uh you know think about reality than um than whether those realities are objectively uh real in some sense because you know for me the the way that that a, a certain vision of reality or an experience with spirits If they're real to an individual who experiences them, then that's going to shape their beliefs, practices, you know, for example, and that's of interest to me uh, as an anthropologist. I'm going to return to C.S. Peirce again. I'd add that my approach to theory and truth is influenced by pragmatic philosophers like Peirce. Uh, I, I did mention him earlier. I think you'll remember that. Uh, Peirce, who's one of the founders of semiotics, spoke about how any act of interpretation involves not just signs and objects. So semiotics is like this study of signs. Um, So not just signs and objects, like the word spirit and potentially an actual spirit in the world, so the sign and the object, but also what Peirce referred to as interpretants in the sense of persons who interpret and lend meaning to those signs. I do think that triangle, sign, object, interpretant, it's important to maintain the integrity of each of those. I don't think I think some branches of anthropology might go very, very strongly on the interpretant side. But remember, there's also objects, right? And there's also linguistic representation. So I, I would encourage all anthropologists to give, you know, a kind of equal or at least do, do attention to each of those three pieces of that triangle. So in this pragmatic, you know, philosophical tradition, I don't pretend to have purely objective knowledge of the world. My ideas, again, I do respect objects and objects resist, but I'm an interpretant, right? So it's not purely objective. In some sense, my ideas and claims and arguments are reflections of my own uh, position in the world. So I, like most anthropologists I know, am not a positivist. I think I can say that confidently. Uh, Mm -hmm. Most anthropologists are not positivists in the sense of, you know, thinking that our representations of the world, be those religious or gaming or whatever, are kind of reflections or mirrors of the world. Rather, it's that triangle between signs, objects, and interpretants that is of interest. Uh, still, like you, as you alluded to in your introductory comments, I also have an active imagination. So I'm, I, I'm also drawn to, you know, ideas about spirits and God and supernaturals being potentially real in some <laughs> more uh, objective sense. Uh, That might reflect my own childhood and adolescence of consuming fantasy and science fiction novels and films, uh, also tabletop gaming, things like Dungeons and Dragons and other similar games. Um, That's of interest in how it shapes my own interpretation of things, that interpretant piece. But when I put on my anthropological hat, the real power is in that dialogue between anthropological theory and my respondents' perspectives. Uh, incidentally, I would add as a piece here, this is one reason why I now work almost exclusively in large uh, research teams, I alluded to this earlier as well, uh, be it in India studying spiritual matters or researching games here closer to home. Um, so in India, for example, my research teams include devout Hindus, for example, who might have quite different ideas than myself about the reality of supernatural agents. Those alternative life worlds are rich sources of again, abductive inferences about the world. Because a devout Hindu might have a very different understanding of the world compared to me, a different creative kind of explanation of what's driving these uh, avatar experiences. So attending to that diversity of perspectives helps in the falsification processes I mentioned uh, uh, above, putting our own ideas at risk to a variety of methodological checks uh, and in reference to alternative uh, points of view.
0: And I mean, coming back to this idea of escapism, um, I mean, especially... For now obsolete games like second life where people playing it are seen as escaping reality um but the argument like you're making in the book is kind of the opposite of escapism uh and yeah is much more intricate than this about gamers and uh and possessed people's experiences Uh, could you tell us a bit about that
1: yeah can i can i just say one thing i i like your word obsolete because that's not the word i would use I think it shows I think it's interesting because, yeah, it's, that's like a two thousand seven eight earlier, I guess, kind of second life, right? So I think to like a new a younger generation, it's like, wow, that was a long time ago. And the way I think about it, i I actually have students who still work in Second Life. It's not what it was, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, meta, I guess, is on the horizon. But Second life, I still consider it a, a kind of interesting. Virtual world that some of my students sometimes delve in. It's got some weird uh, cr- nooks and crannies uh, in it as well. Um, and there, there have been people who have thought about like abandoned virtual worlds as a kind of interesting topic where you go in and there's like one other person there, and <laughs> and that can lead to some interesting kinds of <laughs> digital experiences. Uh, anyway, I'll I'll dive into it. So yeah the the escape point that's an important point. And I think that is probably the more common kind of mainstream, even u s or maybe even global, I would say perspective on video games is yeah, this is escape. And I think escape not in a positive way often. It's like you're like escape in the sense of avoidance and you shouldn't be avoiding your life, right? So let me return to some things I said earlier. Um, I do think that playing a video game, uh, I guess being possessed, though it doesn't sound exactly right when I say it right now, but I guess those 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 can provide for things like uh, what some refer to as like cognitive distraction, and even temporary escape from your life problems. In fact, I make that argument in various publications, including uh, in this new book, The Avatar Faculty. Um that escape or that distraction can be in the form of what researchers call uh, escape or distraction. Well, no, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. One form of escape or distraction can be that you get so engaged in the kind of other level of reality, this alternate kind of level reality, uh, that you and you can become very engaged and you care about, you, you experience what researchers refer to as a positive stress or a u-stress rather than distress, a u-stress in the sense of positive stress. So that's a heightened feeling of psychophysiological arousal, like something's at stake when you're fighting those in-game monsters. So you engage them more, you try harder, you care, maybe even reach that kind of satisfying flow state where you're kind of between relaxed and being challenged just in that kind of sweet spot, right? Uh, This is psychologist Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi's language of flow. Uh, He has a book on that. I, I bet a lot of listeners are aware of that work. Uh, and that flow state can take you out of the real world and thus, yes, provide for satisfying temporary. We could call it distraction and escape. I get that. Um, or fighting low-level monsters or just wandering about in a virtual world can produce a deep feeling of calm and relaxation, breaking negative distress. So both breaking negative distress and providing satisfying e-stress, uh, right? Positive you stress, Those can distract you from your life and your problems. Uh, And, you know, many gamers I spoke with and things I personally experienced would say things like that. Um, And so this is beneficial in terms of things like stress relief, for example, uh, and some gamers, as I described in the book, even talked about their game as a kind of meditation, not in all the different ways we might think of meditation these days, but in the sense of a kind of turn inward and not being distracted both by the outside world and I guess in the case of many traditions of meditation your own kind of internal voice or uh, narrator, right? Because you're in the game and that's actually quite useful. Um, Neil Gaiman, uh, the writer, also involved in, in many comic books, so he's gone beyond that in film and other forms of media, spoke about how fiction can reveal to us new life possibilities, which can propel us to improve our lives as a whole. Fiction can be can be valuable, opening doorways to new lives as Gaiman and others see it and he continues paraphrasing J.R. Tolkien saying that the only people against escape are prison guards or something to that mm-hmm. effect. So I actually take that idea quite quite seriously because I I wonder if in using the term escape if people are people who see it that way are not recognizing these other possible things that are going on in a in a spiritual possession which you could also think of as a kind of escape from your actual person, right? Uh, or in a video game. So following this line of reasoning, I also consider in the book, and I agree this is probably more of a kind of radical uh, position, how gamer identity, and indeed the identity one experiences through a character or a spiritual entity, can also provide individuals with insights into how and act, how to be and act in the real world or in, the, in, the, in their fuller lives. So there could be more than just escape, there could be insights and other processes going on. So things like games can also provide players with what we might call elevated prestige, something I talked about earlier, which can spill over into the actual world. So video game players based in part on their character avatar experience and in-game successes can come to perceive themselves differently in their offline lives. And I really do see this. Um, There could be a social network kind of piece there that it only works or it works most effectively if other people are somewhat sympathetic to video games in your kind of inner circle and kind of know what you're doing but often with a lot of gamers or other you know religious people you see these kinds of network kind of effects so the people around them important people around them you know from all walks of life can see them in a new light for example as a skilled accomplished or perhaps um even a heroic you know kind of person a person who has traits like generosity and skill and courage and commitment maybe these sides of that person weren't as visible you know, in outside of these these kind of virtual world context, some players can even come to feel like their whole person is more accomplished with an enhanced sense of personal agency and efficacy. So as anthropologists and 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 health disparities researchers like um, Michael Marmot, for example, write, even those temporary moments of elevated prestige and standing and self-efficacy, agency, et cetera, those can be really important for people, especially those who might feel somehow marginalized. Or disempowered in their lives. So, those secondary avatar identities and elevated social statuses can be quite important for them, even more important for people who might not be marginalized or of low status or something like that. They give them both insights and these new paths to show who they are and what they're worth, somewhat distance and disconnected from the way they might be seen or interpreted in, in, a, in an, another, another kind of actual world context. So in the book, I delve into these ideas in relationship to Badami Bhatt. Remember, she's that central person who became possessed by her her husband's clan deity. Uh, She she belongs to a so-called, I'll say so-called low caste. I mean, I don't think about them that way. Others don't think of them that way. Caste is illegal in India. I mean, there's all sorts of, but a lot of people do think of them that way. So I'll say a so-called low caste in this marginalized community. And we see similar patterns, at least among some video game players, who feel like they can have their talents and qualities and like person, you know, more fully, fully recognized in a game world. That feeling again can have spillover effects into players' lives outside the game. And this can all be quite important from a health and well-being perspective.
0: Chef, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It was wonderful to talk to you about your book, The Avatar Faculty, Ecstatic Transformations in Religion and Video Games, which recently came out of uh, University of California Press. Um, Hopefully we can keep this conversation going.
1: Yes, Armand, I appreciate the invitation and I uh, enjoyed the conversation. Um, And thank you for that again.
0: Thank you. Until next time.
1: Okay, bye. Bye.